0: I ask that you turn in your Bibles to the book of Philippians, Philippians chapter 1. Starting with verse 27. Only let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ. But whether I come and see you, or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs, that ye stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. And in nothing terrified by your adversaries, which to them, which is to, th- to them an evident token of perdition, but to you of salvation and that of God. For unto you it is given in the behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for his sake, having the same conflict which he saw in me and now here to be in me. If there be, therefore, any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels and mercies, fulfill ye my joy, that ye be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves." Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. In Philippians chapter one, verses twenty-seven through thirty, Paul makes it very clear to the Philippian church that he wants them to one stand fast, stand firm in one spirit, God-centered tenacity. Strive together with one mind, a God-centered harmony. And thirdly, be courageous, God-centered courage. Through everything that Christians go through in life, no matter how good or how bad, everything is to be Christ-centered. Everything in the life of the Christian is to be Christ-centered. Now, if this is true then what? If we, along with the Apostle Paul, can in all honesty and truth say, Christ is my life, then what? What practical implications will this have on our daily lives? And more specifically, how will this affect our lives in the church, and even more specifically, how will this affect our interpersonal relationships with others in the church. In Philippians 2, 1, we read, once again, if there be therefore any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the spirit, if any bowels and mercies. Paul is describing the inner being of the Christian. Supernatural doesn't come of ourselves supernatural comfort of love, fellowship of the Spirit, and affection and mercy. Now there is more than one word for if in the Greek New Testament. When Paul says if in verse 1, please don't read it as a doubtful or negative if, such as if you were a loving spouse, you would have remembered our anniversary. No, it's not a doubtful if. No, the meaning of verse one in the Greek is not, if you really are who you say you are, then you would be living out verses two through four. The meaning of if in verse one is more of an encouraging one. So what we are looking at in verses 1 through 4 would, would go something like this. People who can rightly say that verse 1, what we see in verse 1 is true of them, should also be able to rightly say that verses 2, 2 through 4 are true about them as well. Or at the very least, verses 2 through 4 are true and that they are in the process of becoming. So, when verse 1 is true, then verses 2 through 4 should follow. And verses 2 through 4 will lead to real Christian joy. Joy in the kingdom of Jesus. There is joy in the kingdom when its citizens exhibit, one, unity, two, humility, and three, Helpfulness. Originally, I planned to get through all of this, but that is not to be. So, Lord willing, the next time I'm here, we'll end up completing down through verse 4. When people who have been given life by the Holy Spirit and are in the process of being changed internally by the Holy Spirit There should be evidence of this internal change. Unity, humility, and helpfulness should result. To dig a bit deeper, when verse 1 is being experienced internally by the Christian, unity should result. And how is unity going to result without humility and helpfulness? Considering that Paul talked about the importance of unity in the final verses of Philippians chapter one, and brings the subject up here again in Philippians chapter two very soon afterwards, do you get the idea that perhaps the Philippian church might just have an obvious problem in the unity department? Without even looking at the whole book of Philippians, I would think so and the rest of the book of Philippians, when it is studied, the problem is definitely there. Verse two, once again, fulfill ye my joy that ye be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind, let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. So how's this unity going to come about? How will Paul's joy be fulfilled? Is this something that the church does on its own? Or like verse one, does something supernatural have to occur? True Christian unity is impossible without the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit within its regenerated members. And this supernatural work of the Holy Spirit is called sanctification. Sanctification is the work of God's free grace whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God and are enabled more and more to die unto sin and to live unto righteousness. And while I might like to take credit for all of that, that's actually under the question 35 of the Westminster Shorter Catechism, what is sanctification. Sanctification is a 100% work of the Holy Spirit in the life of the Christian in which the Holy Spirit enables the Christian to die unto sin and to live unto righteousness. A key word there is enabled. Sanctification is a 100% work of God, but the work is an enabling work which enables the Christian to die unto sin and to live unto righteousness. In verse 12 of Philippians chapter 2, we read, Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. The Holy Spirit does the sanctification, and the Christian just sits back and does nothing and lets things happen, and they become more and more godly, they just sit back? No. The Christian must work hard. It is hard work. This verse is speaking of Christians doing what they are supposed to be doing as they are being sanctified by the Holy Spirit. This is work, hard work, difficult work. Christians are enabled by the Holy Spirit to do difficult work that they would be unable to do without the Holy Spirit's sanctifying work. And this hard work involves both learning what the Word of God says as well as falling through with what it says. When we look at the scriptures, we should be asking ourselves, like the Puritans, one, what does it say? Two, what does it mean? And three, what are you going to do about it? True Christian unity involves Christians knowing the word of God and living it. Hard work. Dying unto sin and living unto righteousness is hard work that involves knowing what the scripture says, knowing what it means, and doing what needs to be done hard work all the while depending on God. This righteousness is not just something that occurs on the inside of the Christian but what is going on inside makes itself known on the outside as Jesus made very clear. For example, if we truly hunger and thirst after righteousness then we will be strongly desiring to find out What the Word of God says. What is righteousness? This involves time and effort, getting to know the Word of God by reading it regularly and in generous portions. When you're healthy, do you ever say to yourself, you know, I think I'll just not eat anything today. Or maybe I'll just go two or three days without eating or drinking. Or if you're really hungry and someone offers you your favorite food, do you regularly respond by saying, Eh, nah, I love that food, and I'm extremely hungry, but nah, not today, maybe some other day. Now this might seem like a ridiculous example to you, but how much more ridiculous is it to say that you hunger and thirst after righteousness and at the same time go days without reading the Word of God? Or if you do read it, you read it in small portions. Let's say you love prime rib, and you haven't eaten for eight hours, and you've been working, and you are offered a wonderfully large, beautiful slab of prime rib, just the way you like it. And of course you're going to say, I'll take a bite, save the rest for next week. Maybe I'll take another bite next week. I think that I will eat some vegetables and go for a walk. Nice looking steak, though. About 14 years ago, as a family, we started reading the Bible differently than we did before. Under this new program, and I don't mean that we read some book and followed some real program, but under this new program, we all had the responsibility to read a certain amount of chapters a day. And if we fell behind, we had to catch up. So if you don't read for a week, two weeks, you've got a lot of catching up to do. Heather and I are now on our 14th time through the Bible, and the results have been absolutely amazing. It's not like we hadn't read the Bible through before. I'm not saying that we hadn't read it through multiple times. But words cannot describe what this has done for us and is doing for us. How can you know what the Word of God says if you do not read it regularly and in generous portions? How can we know what the Word of God means unless we read it regularly and in generous portions? And how can we know what to do about it if we don't even know what it is? How can Christians be of one accord and of one mind unless they read the God regularly and in generous portions. How can we have real Christian unity if we have no real idea what we're supposed to be unified about? I don't know how many of you may may have through your years visited or been a member of a liberal church. It's amazing how liberal churches can be so unified on the surface. In a sense, they don't really have anything to argue about. They don't even know what the truth is. So I can have my opinion, you can have your opinion. It's all equally truth. It's all truth. What's my truth is my truth, and what's your truth is your truth. But see, we don't have that in real Christianity. So if we're going to have real Christian unity, and we have no idea about what we're supposed to be unified about, how are we going to be unified? How are the Philippian churches going to fulfill Paul's joy by being biblically unified if all they have are their individual ideas on what needs to be done because none of them or only some of them are truly hungering and thirsting after righteousness? Now, I'm not trying to embarrass any of you. I'm really not. But there are some of us who sometimes, maybe on just a every so often? Make sure that we're near the front of the food line. That's a meal after the service. Why? Because you're hungry and you want to eat. You are hungry. Now, after you go through the line, do you then just sit down and ignore your food while you talk to people at your table? No, you are hungry. Talking's nice, but I'm hungry. As we stand in the food line, thoughts can automatically and naturally go through our heads that might sound something like this, though I think they're pretty much automated. What is this food? What's this food mean to me? What am I going to do about that food? Am I going to take some, Or am I going to take that? A fourth question might be, who brought that food? If I know who brought the food, and if it's This person, I know I want that food because that person always brings good food. And you externalize what is going on internally by the food choices that you make. When we hunger and thirst for the word of God, we should be asking, what does it say? What's it mean? That's the internal. The external, what am I going to do about it? And who brought us this spiritual food? God did. Jesus makes it clear in the Beatitudes that a mark of the true Christian is hungering and thirsting after righteousness. Without this hungering and thirsting after righteousness, the unity that Paul is yearning for will never happen. Looking at our outline again, there is joy in the kingdom when its citizens exhibit unity, verse 2, humility, verse 3, and then helpfulness, verse 4. Now, earlier in the sermon, I asked a question, how is unity going to result without humility and helpfulness? In verse 3, we read, Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. One of the ways to look at humility is looking at yourself in the way that God the Father looks at you and living accordingly. If you are a Christian, God the Father knows who you were before you became a Christian. If you are a Christian, God the Father looks at you and sees how you sin, but also sees how you are responding to the supernatural sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. And if you are a Christian, and this is extremely important, God the Father looks at you and sees the righteousness of Jesus that has been graciously placed in your account. An illustration of that is going to the bank. And you know you have $8.75 in there. But if you're like me, you always ask for your balance. So you make your $16 deposit and your balance is now one million and some change. You say, there must be some mistake. And the person says, no mistake, somebody graciously put a million dollars in your account. It's been imputed to you. See, we don't, cause ourselves to be saved. Everything's God. And then when God changes us and the Holy Spirit changes us, we joyfully accept Jesus. And when God the Father looks at your spiritual account, he sees something much more valuable than a million dollars And just like you had nothing to do with that million dollars, nothing to earn, that gracious act, which would be kind of contradictory, the idea that you earned a gracious act. Since grace means unmerited favor, you did nothing to deserve it. When God looks at your spiritual account, he sees Jesus, and that's all he needs to see. Did you do anything during your salvation? Absolutely not. Did you do anything during the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit? No, nothing. So live like it. God knows who you were and who you are, so live like God says that you are in His word. I don't know if any of you have ever lived in a small town or out in the country. One of the things about living in a small town or out in the country, you can be in your 60s, and there's still somebody that's going to remember that you did something embarrassing when you were three years old and the whole community, just got a good laugh out of what you did. Even when you're on your deathbed, still potentially people out there, and at your funeral, They're potentially going to tell that story. Community knows who you were and who you are. And God knows you even better. God knows who you were and who you are, so live like it. I am one great person. Just look at me. No. Without Jesus, you're a huge mess. Or sometimes we may go the opposite direction and say, you know, when we're feeling down, I'm such a piece of garbage and such a loser. No, if you are a Christian, God the Father says otherwise. That's not humility, that's calling God a liar. Look at yourself in the way that God looks at you. Look at yourself realistically and look at fellow Christians realistically as well. Husbands and wives, see there are some of you out there. The next time you have a discussion, also known in some circles as an argument, listen to your words as they come out of your mouth. If your spouse is a Christian, are you truly attempting to look at them in the way that God the Father does? Are you making any statements whatsoever in any way that are not totally true? The husband may say, Terry, she did this and that, and she totally had those comments that I gave her coming to her, and more for that matter. And to top everything off, she disobeyed me. And the wife, she's got her side too. But Terry, he's not showing me love. And since he did not show me biblical love, I have the right to show him disrespect. Why should I have to obey him Why should I have to be nice to him when he said all these awful things about me? And we wonder why we have unity problems in our churches. Both the husband and the wife in this illustration are speaking some truth. But like Job's friends are mixing truth and error and the results are music to Satan's ears. And if the children are within earshot of this discussion... You are discipling them, not in the right way, but you're discipling them. And young people, when your parents tell you to do something that is your responsibility to do, and you don't feel like doing it, what might be your response? You can't tell me what to do. And as we grow up, we often take that you can't tell me what to do attitude with us. When we fail to look at others in the way that God does and not look at ourselves in the way that God does, chaos follows. We have excuses for what we do, but we make sure that there is no excuse for what they do. And in the process, are we telling God that he has no business telling us what to do? In my close to 35 years of being an ordained Reformed pastor, I have noticed that there are certain subjects that we as pastors are often expected not to be truthful about when we preach from the pulpit. As pastors, we're told that we are to preach the whole counsel of God. But in reality, we are often expected to preach the almost whole counsel of God, the almost whole counsel of God. There are certain subjects that if we deal with them biblically from the pulpit, we will often face the wrath of our church members. And I mean wrath. If you asked me two years ago what the top five death trap subjects were for pastors preaching, this is what I might have come up with in my opinion, hasn't really changed since. And as I give you the five subjects, I am then going to give you some of the potential responses or underlying unwritten rules that people in the pew might have if a preacher preaches an in-depth biblical sermon or series of sermons on each of these subjects. One, the Sabbath. Talk to us about the positive aspects of the Sabbath But do not dare tell us what the Westminster Larger Catechism says that we should not be doing on the Sabbath. Secondly, modesty. Preach on it. That's good. Just don't encourage me to change the way that I dress. Just understand that I am going to dress the way that I am going to dress. And if you dare offend me about it in any way, you are a body-shaming, legalistic Pharisee besides god judges people on the inside and not the outside it's funny jesus didn't say that but scripture says otherwise he god judges us on both number 3 modesty and how it affects people in the church who have a pornography problem stay off that one don't tell me that i do not have the right to dress the way that i dress if people have a pornography problem and would like to come to church and not see certain things, that is their problem, not mine. See, mixture of truth and error. It is their problem. But is that showing love? Is that showing encouragement for that person who has a really bad sin problem? Number four, roles of men and women in the church and roles of those who are elders and not elders. Don't preach on that to any great extent. Preach on the subject, but stay away from the details. And you might not want to go much further than the offices of deacons and elders. That's it. Number five, family roles for husbands and wives. If you're going to preach on this, emphasize mutual submission, and husbands loving their wives. You've done a good job there, now stop. This all falls under the subject of acting like an ungodly child. What right do you have to tell me what to do? Humility. Does this sound like humility? No, it sounds like being a spoiled brat. Adult Christians in the church acting like unregenerate children who have never even attended a day of church in their lives. Is this humility? No, it's rebellion against God, even when it's couched in pretty spiritual sounding words. Now I very much respect the elders of a church or the pastor of the church coming to me and requesting that I speak on certain subjects or stay off certain subjects. I consider myself to be a guest And that pastor and those elders know their congregations much better than I do. But when congregations subtly or not so subtly let their pastors know that they do not want them to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth about what God has to say, this is essentially removing parts of Scripture from the Word of God. And we should know from the Scriptures that any person who adds or subtracts from the word of God is in danger of being under the curse of God. Humility, looking at ourselves in the way that God looks at us and living accordingly. God looks at us as people who are under authority and need and in need of biblical instruction. For me to have a no one is going to tell me what to do attitude, this is a slap right in the face of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. No one was going to tell Eve what to do. Eat the fruit and be like God. And acting like the head of the home, as she did, she ate and encouraged her husband to do the same. I'd like you to turn to 1 John chapter 2. First John chapter two, verse 16. It reads, for all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And I'll repeat that. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. Now let's turn to Genesis chapter three. Genesis chapter three, verse six. Adam and Eve have been created. First, Adam doesn't have a helpmeet. When he gets that helpmeet, he is extremely excited. Easier to see in the Hebrew than it is in the English. But he's excited, he's thrilled. Verse six, and when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, lust of the, lust of the eyes, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a, tree to be, and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof and did eat, and gave also her husband with her, and he did eat. So the first, and I said it incorrectly, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, lust of the flesh. Then we see the lust of the eyes. And then we see the pride of life. Good for food, pleasant for the eyes. Be like God. Eve was going to be like God. No humble obedience for her. And all mankind at the moment that Eve ate the fruit were headed for hell. Is that correct? That's absolutely incorrect. No, we didn't sin in Eve. We send in Adam, who did not perform his authoritative role as head of the home, and say, no. Adam did not look at himself in the way that God looked at him. He did not manifest biblical humility, and neither did Eve. And what happened to the perfect unity between Adam and Eve? Adam, the woman whom you gave to be with me. They they sinned and... What's Adam's response? Blame the woman. It also seems like it might just be a slap in the face of God who gave that woman to me. Sure, blame the woman. And in doing so, blame God as well. But whether Adam was blatantly blaming God or not, he was reacting against the the biblical role and responsibility that God had given him. Humility thinking of yourself that the, way, the way that God did and living accordingly, A- Adam absolutely did not exhibit biblical humility. Adam and Eve were going to do what they were going to do, then they tried to hide what they did, and then they both blamed someone else for what occurred. My wife, the serpent. They had indeed become gods and puny gods they were. They had become their own little gods, serving themselves. Adam needed to look at himself as a creature who was under the authority of God. When you were born, did you, right out of the womb, look up at your parents and name your parents? Did you name your parents? They didn't even have names until you came out of the womb. You were born and you named your parents. No, your parents named you. You were under their authority. Naming rights come with authority. You see that time and time again in Scripture. Did Abram just decide, hey, I'll be Abraham. Sounds better. No. Did Jacob say, oh, I, I think I like the name Israel. That sounds better. No. Who named them? God did. Who had authority over them? God did. Naming rights come with authority. So when Adam was tempted by Satan and his wife, All he had to do, in one sense, was remember that he had a name, and that name had been given to him by God, who was an authority over Adam. And then he needed to live appropriately. Adam needed to look at himself in the way that God looked at him, a created being who owed his total loyalty and obedience to God. Without humility, forget true biblical unity. It isn't happening. Many years, and this is extremely encouraging. Many years after Adam sinned, a man was tempted by the very same Satan. Except this temptation did not occur in a beautiful garden where Adam and Eve had everything that they physically needed. This later temptation that we see in Scripture occurred in a wilderness setting. That's you turn to Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4, verse 1, And Jesus, being full of the Holy Spirit, returned from Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, being forty days tempted of the devil. And in those days he did eat nothing, and when they were ended, he afterward hungered. And the devil said unto him, If thou be the Son of God, command this stone to be made bread. Now, is he going to fall prey to the lust of the flesh? No. It is written... That man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of the word of but by every word of God. Next, the devil says unto him in verse six, All this power I will give thee, and the glory of them, for that is delivered unto me, and whomsoever I will, I give it. And if thou therefore wilt worship me, all shall be thine. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Get thee behind me, Satan, for it is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. Lust of the eyes. Unlike Adam, he succeeds. Verse 12, or going into verse 12, the temptation is, Verse 9, if thou be the Son of God, cast thyself down from hence. And Jesus ends up saying at the end, it is said, thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. Pride of life. See, you can do this. No. No glorifying of himself It is said, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. Jesus was known for his humility. He knew that he was exactly what his heavenly father said that he was. He was God the son who was always perfectly obedient to his heavenly father during his earthly ministry. Jesus had perfect humility and the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have always had, always will, and always will have perfect unity. Jesus perfectly... Succeeded, or Adam had failed, and if you are Christian, aren't you glad that he did? We must be biblically humble too. This humility is impossible without the death, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, and the regeneration and sanctification of His people. And how are we going to know what humility is and how to be humble? unless we come hungering and thirsting after righteousness and the word of God, asking the vital questions concerning the scriptures before us. What does it say? What does it mean? And what am I going to do about it? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth in it we pray Heavenly Father that we will not just sit back and say well I go to a Bible believing reformed church so therefore I'll just wait until the sermon I'll wait until the training I'll wait until Wednesday evening and then I'll find out what it says what it means, and I can decide what to do about it. We pray, Heavenly Father, that we will not have unbiblical views like that. For, for you do call on us to worship. You do call on us to be instructed. But at the same time, during our week, may we always remember that we have the responsibility to learn more and more in your word on a regular basis in generous portions while at the same time relying on your Holy Spirit to change us. In Jesus' name. Amen.